Hi there, welcome along to another edition of Sporting Wives, where we look back through the career of somebody who made their name in sport, and I'm delighted to welcome to this episode a rugby league player. Well, I guess as a Leeds fan back in the day, I was kind of hoping he wouldn't do that well against my team because he played for arch-rivals Bradford Northern, but uh, also had a distinguished career with uh, other clubs as well, the likes of Keithley, uh, hometown for him, uh, York and Hunslet, and then uh, carried that on as well into a successful coaching career. Welcome along to Sporting Lives, Peter Rowe. Jonathan, good evening, nice to see you. It's great to see you too. Um, and uh, it's going to be good for me, is this, um, hopefully for our uh, regulars as well, to look at your career because, as I say, I was kind of, you know, at the other side of things as a fan on the terraces, as a young lad watching you play, and of course wanted my team to win. But I think, like lots of sports uh, spectators and fans, there's a great respect for your opponents. And you kind of, you know, you wanted Bradford Northern to be a pretty good side because it meant something when you beat them then. And I guess in reverse, you wanted Leeds probably to be a good side so that when you got one over on them, you know, it felt more important having those bragging rights. Yeah, that's a fantastic way of putting it. I mean, I'll just, I'll go back to that in a second. But I think, I think in the modern era, 2021, the Bulls are where they are, which is very sad. Um, hopefully on the way back. Rhino's had a couple of lean years, but appear to be benefiting from their investment in the junior setup. <clears throat> and, from a complete neutral now, <clears throat> I would like to see both clubs go back to what they were in the in the in the early two thousands, where they were getting seventeen thousand people watching them when it was on live TV and creating a great atmosphere mm-hmm. to show the the rest of the the sporting country that rugby league is a tip top game. Going back to what you said, Jonathan. Um, to play the Rhinos was always a bit special. Um, I, in the 60s and early 70s as a child, when Leeds played on a Saturday, in what we called game before Super came in, uh, Leeds used to play on a Saturday and, and they were getting five, six, seven thousand. Actually, was a Rhinos, sorry, a Leeds Rugby League fan because they played on a Saturday and my heroes were John Atkinson and Alan Smith. I used to then go watch Keith Lee on a Sunday because the game transferred to a Sunday game, but Leeds always played at home on a Saturday during those early decades. So whilst you and I have been associated with two rivals, I have a bit of a closer connection with the Leeds than you possibly thought I had. <laughs> Well, that's, that's, that's the great thing about these podcasts, learning things that you didn't already know. And I certainly didn't have a clue that you'd been a, grown up as a, as a Leeds fan. So uh, what did it feel like then, turning out, playing against them um, for your team? Or was that just a case of being professional and doing the job you were paid to do on the day? Well, <clears throat> again, we go back because before I moved to Bradford, I, I was at Keithley, obviously, as a, young, a really young 17, 18-year-old. Bradford signed me, but... I actually played with a hit with with a hero of mine, John Atkinson, for Yorkshire, whilst I was still an eighteen year old playing at Keithley. So I was actually 
centre to a, an absolute hero of mine. And he, he, I mean, I never told him because I was all, I was a bit embarrassed, really. But he, he was him and Alan Smith were, were two heroes of mine. And to play with John Atkinson for Yorkshire, whilst I was a sort of a uh, a green on learning his trade at Keithley. Absolutely fantastic to be selected in a representative team with a guy that I'd, I'd, I'd admired for years. Incredible. I don't, I don't know if it still stands or not, but certainly at the time you were the youngest player that Yorkshire had ever selected. Am I right? Yeah, correct. Yeah. Yeah, which is, uh, again, I mean, I don't ever tell people still because I don't talk about rugby anymore much. But uh, yes, I was. And um, to be fair, it was played at Keithley. Now, whether there was. That was something to do with the selection, I don't know. But I thought I warranted it, and um, we went on to enjoy a few games together, John and I. Yeah, very fine player, and uh, and also one of my heroes uh, growing up, just that little bit younger than you, uh, watching from the uh, the Western Terrace at Headingley. Yeah, we've jumped straight in there, but it just felt appropriate to do that. Like We can wind things back, and, and let's just talk about you know how you got into it in the first place, because... Um, from reading up a bit of background about you, um, and you can correct me if I'm wrong on any of this, um, you are clearly talented across several sports, football being one with a couple of professional clubs showing some interest, rugby union, of course, as well, as well as league. And I know that you played cricket. I'm not quite sure whether your ability is measured up in that respect as well. So but several things to go at. What made you decide rugby league was, was the way to go? <clears throat> well, uh, it it happened really when I was living uh, on a farm, if you like, and fell out of a tree, pretending to be a monkey, I think. As you did. Um, yeah. <laughs> I'd, I'd, I'd been to Sheffield United, I'd been to Man United. I was, go I was going back to Sheffield during an Easter period where I hoped to be signed as an apprentice professional. Um, I was climbing a tree at this farm where we lived and the branch broke and I ended up on the floor in absolute agony. And once over, I had damaged my back really badly. And for 12 months, I could do nothing. Mm -hmm. So no rugby, no soccer, no, as I call it, soccer, uh, no cricket, nothing. No athletics, couldn't do anything. And... Um, I never pushed myself in any sport, really. Uh, and I thought, well, Sheffield United aren't going to really want me anymore. They kept writing to me, and I, I thought, well, it's probably been going back because if, if I do badly, they'll, they'll strike me off. So I never went back again. Um, at the same time, I'd be playing junior rugby league, but again, didn't play for a year. And as soon as my back started to get better, I just went back to playing junior rugby league. And um, Keith Lee Rugby League signed me from then on and never played a game of football again, Jonathan. And what about the cricket side of things? And were you playing that as a youngster as well? Yeah, I played cricket from the age of 11. Not particularly a good player by any means. I was a bit oh, of a lunatic. Oh, which, which club did you play for? Clubs? I played, I played, sorry, yeah, I played for Riddlesden in what was the old West Bradford League. That's now defunct. Um, as a junior, then I played in the first team as a really young kid. Kept wicket. Did okay, but really too tall to be a wicket keeper, six foot two. I was okay stood back, but 
over the top when I think that's how a, a keeper's judged. Wasn't too clever, really. So, but went on to play cricket till I was 43, ended up at Skipton in the Air Wolf League. <laughs> Crazy. <laughs> good club. Uh, Keithley, of course, a good cricket club um, over the years. In fact, we do share, we do have one thing in common, Pete, and that is that we have both been on the pitch at, at uh, Keith, on the rugby league ground at Keithley. Unfortunately for me, it was a ball I delivered that was smashed over the top of the stand from the cricket ground. Um, but uh, there you go. Um, what about um, that move then to to Bradford Northern from Keithley? Because you know, Roy Francis, I think, was around, wasn't he, in charge at Northern at the time, had been at Leeds, of course, as well. So I'm guessing probably another bit of hero worship in a sense. Uh, and I'm also guessing you know, that interest from a so-called bigger club at the time as well would have prompted it? Yeah, it, it was really. I mean, um, the physio for Bradford Northern was a chap called Ronnie Barrett who lived next door to us in Keithley. And Ronnie had been physio at uh, Keithley for many years and um, was then physio at Bradford for many years and we used to talk to each other. And we don't want to use the word poaching, but um, he had a few words with me. And they said, you know, we, 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 the, the club are following your, your achievements, if that's the right word, following what you're doing. And do you fancy coming to Bradford? And as a young kid, you don't too, I'm not supposed to have a, this sort of chat with you. I straight away, I said, yeah, of course I would. Um, but you were a semi-pro or a pro in those days, so that they had to be procedures. And not long after that, um, not all the Bradford Northern had approached Keithley. And um, paid a transfer fee, and away I went, 10 miles up the road to Odsall. And were you straight in first team rugby? And, and if so, what was that like? Because you were yeah. still pretty young teenager at the time, weren't you? Yeah, that's right, I was, yeah, 19. 18, 19, yeah. Um, fantastic. Uh, three directors came round to the house one night. Um, my stepdad had gone to the club, and uh, me and my mum were in. We, you know, they'd run up and say, we're coming to come and see you and discuss terms. And um, they'd already spoke to Keith and agreed a fee. So it was just down to me whether I wanted to go or not, which obviously I did. Signed a form and uh, the night after I was training with Bradford Northern. And Roy Frank, ex-Leeds and Hull and all those places. Fantastic coach, Roy Francis. Um Met me on the Thursday. We did a few sprints as we did in those days. Did a bit of ball work, prepared for the game. And then the Sunday, on the think the 31st of December, 1975, um, I signed for them and played my first game, I think on the 1st of January, uh, the year after. <laughs> the day after. Yeah. Uh, against Castleford at home. Was it a memorable start? Did you any assists? Any tries on that first day? No, I don't think so. I did okay though. I think it was a. I think it was a, a close game. I don't think we won. I'm, I'm not sure about the result, to be honest. But I remember Castleford used to do this move involving Jeff Wraith. Oh, Jeff was a really good fullback in the days when every club had a good fullback, and, and Jeff didn't. I don't think he played for great, but, but it was close to it. And they had this move where they involved Jeff. But I played for Yorkshire with Jeff and I knew the move. And he was the guy that 
the first two did the dummy run and the third scrum, they changed the move and he got the ball. And I read what they were doing and he says, Roy says, Sarge, you bloody knew, you knew what were happening, didn't you? And I said, well, of course I did, Jeff. We practiced it when we played for Yorkshire and did it when we played for Yorkshire. <laughs> so, uh, we had a good laugh. You know, those days, you, you could have laughs like that on the pitch. It was a bit slower and players were probably a bit friendly with each other. But yeah, and we played Cass and I can't remember generally if we won or not, but that was my debut with Bradford. You say players were friendlier and, and I guess, yes, I've seen evidence of that where players who, who might have uh, knocked seven bells out of each other on a Sunday afternoon or a Saturday if you were at Leeds would maybe go for a, for a few beers during the week and have kept in touch with each other long term after their playing careers have finished. But at the same yeah. time... Um, and I mentioned this to you when we were sorting out this interview today. The rugby league was notorious for that first 20 minutes had been the softening up period, wasn't it, in the days when you were playing in particular. That was the sort of old way of the game. Forwards yeah. trying to get dominance over the opposition, but backs as well at times. Um, it wasn't always that friendly, is what I'm trying to say. No, it was nastier. Um, the players were playing for money. You see, I, I try to explain this to younger people today. And some of the older guys, the older people who watched the game but didn't really know the ins and outs. And you got you got more or you got as much or more for winning a game of rugby on the old winning pay losing pay um, situation than you did for a week's work. So. You know, I, I, at that stage, I was working as a laboratory technician training on something like £25 a week back in the mid-70s, where you get maybe £50 a winning if you beat Cass or Hussle. So if you won the game, you got £25 more. Now, to get that money, it won't, because both, all rugby league teams were the same. It wasn't the case of like when Wigan brought professionalism into rugby league and were full timers, everybody played winning money and losing money. Mm-hmm. Don't care what club it was. So we all we all had a a, a procedure, a way to go about winning games or trying to win games. And at times it was nasty, but it was purely money orientated, because the gap between winning uh, winning money, Jonathan, and losing money was massive. For example, fifty quid for winning. Um, for beating Cass at Odsall, to £10 for losing. So £40 more. Yeah. And £40 in those days was worth a lot more than it is now. So all sorts of things took place for you to try and win money. But the beauty about it was, despite one or two unsavoury things that took place on the pitch, all players knew what they were going onto the pitch to do and what possibly could happen. So... You're buying into it and you're investing into it and you're coming off the pitch and you're having a pint with the same guy that's probably elbowed, elbowed you in the jaw or giving you a quick left armour. <laughs> hmm. So there we go. And people today don't understand that. Yeah. So, I mean, some of the stuff that went on, it did make your eyes water as a child thinking, thinking, do I really want to play this game? I'm, I'm quite happy to be standing here paying my money to watch it because I know there's also a lot of skill involved, but... 
I'm not sure I would have survived the first 20 minutes of some of them games that uh, that I watched. So hats off to anybody who, who took on the challenge because it certainly was one. Well, yeah, you're right. But you say you were a cricketer, I was a rugby player. And I wouldn't fancy playing cricket against some of these really quick bowlers with that helmet on back in the old days. Where you would have said to me, well, it's, it's my job to duck and to hit it with a bat. So I would probably say to you, well, some of these guys you've played cricket against and, and, and both your brothers in high level, crikey, you know what I mean? I'd be ducking out of the way of the ball. So it's all about what, you, what you're pretty good at, really. Well, I did, I did play rugby, but only schools rugby. And I've got to say that I worked my way from centre, where you were, um, to full back. So I was always well out of it when that kicked off. <laughs> good choice. Um, so... Let's talk about Bradford Northern because while you were there, I mean, the club has one of its best periods. We can look at Super League, the, the early part of the Super League era when, when as the Bulls, they absolutely nailed it, didn't they, for the first few seasons. and Well, not just the first few seasons, a good decade and more. Um, and prior to that, you think about the team that Trevor Foster was playing in, going back into the what, 40s, 50s. Uh, that was a real good period for the club. But when you were there, late 70s, turn of the 80s, Again, a very successful period, uh, winning a couple of championships, um, John Player trophies, uh, Yorkshire Cups, premierships, I think, as well. The, the one thing that eluded the club for, for Yonks, of course, was the Challenge Cup, as you, you're well aware. What about the, the players that you played with? Because in that, that first uh, championship win of that period, 79-80, uh, you know, an uncompromising side, I think, uh, if you look at them on paper. Can you just talk us through... Uh, your memories of that season and, and some of the players you were playing with and why the team was so good? Well, moving on from Roy Francis, who was a great coach, wanted to play attractive football. That's fine odds up to about late November when you play in the winter, as we did. But Roy had a problem because he didn't have the forwards to plough it down the middle, to grind it out. He always wanted to play on the play of the ball and chuck it about, which... You, you could never do it also because of the conditions. So, Roy left the club. he done really well and we brought Peter Fox in. Now, Peter Fox is, was a, at that stage tactically very, very good. He was on top of his game as a coach and he was exactly able to play rugby league in that particular era he was involved in. And what he did, he signed... Jimmy Thompson from Featherston Rovers, who had had two really bad knee injuries but, and had toured twice, and people said he was past his best. Well, he wasn't. And he came in and he led by example and he turned the team around. One, one player couldn't imagine how a big impact he had on the side. And then Pete Fox signed Nigel Stevens to replace Johnny Wolford, a very Clay now standoff removed from centre. He also signed Jeff Gration from Jewsbury. Jeff again had had a very bad knee injury, and injuries you play with in modern day, um, you, can, you can soldier on. And Len Casey from Hull Care. Absolute monsters of the late 70s, early 80s rugby league game, these guys. 
And then he bought Keith Bridges from Featherstone when hookers hooked for the ball. So he's bought, he, he bought himself a pack, basically, and a very smart standoff. He turned Ellen Redfern in, into, from an A-team scrum half into a first-team scrum half within months of arriving. He saw something in Ellen Redfern that other, with greatest respect to Ellen, that other, other coaches hadn't seen. And then he had the fairies like me and Derek Parker and Dave Redfern, you know, the guys that like to play near the touchline <laughs> compared to some of these big ogres we've bought. Um, and and we'd, we'd got the best defensive and high ball taking fullback in the league in Keith Mumby. So we had basically a team of all talents, as they used to call it back in the day. And I think for, for once in my life as a rugby league player, uh, when, we, when we played anybody, home or away, we always thought, without being stupid in our heads, we always thought, because of the talent we had, we could, we could win matches anywhere. And the, the Peter Fox League, when it got muddy, was perfect for Odsall. It just had all these little moves around the, the ball area that, that people couldn't uh, put up with, couldn't cope with. And you just had the style of rugby based on a big, strong pack with the backs just following around the field, and it worked. And, and was that, because I can't remember thinking about it in coaching terms in any stretch, by any stretch of the imagination as a, whatever I was at the time, a 13, 12, 13-year-old lad, but was that the sort of archetypal percentage rugby that Peter Fox talked about? And, you know, was that the yeah. start of it for him, or did he already do that when he was coaching elsewhere and just brought that to the club? Before Jonathan, he'd done it at um, Featherston, his first coaching club. He'd done it at Wakefield. And he went to Bramley and coached them to win Division 2, when it was called Division 1 and Division yeah. 2 then. And he stayed a year at Bramley. Uh, forgot, brought their Neil back with him, because Neil Fox, the great Neil Fox, played at Bramley with him, brought him back to Odsall. Uh, no, he, he, he'd, done it, he'd done it quite uh, profusely with other clubs this was his fourth club and every club he'd been at he'd been successful yeah, just, to, just to explain and, and maybe actually it's good, better coming from you than, than me um, to, to those who are watching that are maybe not totally initiated with that term percentage rugby how would you describe it? Percentage rugby was um, don't pass to anybody in a, another position, unless they're in a bit better position than you are. Um, if we have to play six tackles up the middle of the field, when we're winning by eight points or six points with 15 minutes to go, that's what we'll do. Um, if you're stood on the, on the wing or in the centre, and if one of your mates is flagging the forwards, go in, take the ball and play it like you're a forward. Don't don't run like a back where you make it tackle in touch or try to beat somebody on the outside. Yeah. It was all basically keyed up to the to the to the playing surface at Odsall and to the way he thought the game should be played at that time. And keep it tight. And, and maybe as an addition to that, just thinking after your time there, but when Derek Fox, for example, uh, went to play for Bradford, um, played at Featherston, of course, uh, that kicking game, kick it deep, 
you know, and five drive, you know, kick, kick it deep and play the game at their end of yeah. the field. Make them make mistakes yeah. and coming out of their own ends. He always had a saying, did Foxy, it was kick for effect. And what that meant was don't just kick it and let's hope. Think about where you're kicking it. Um, so they have to move their fullback and wingers towards the ball. But make sure we've got a straight line of defenders. And that means not just three or four chasing it, like you used to happen in the old days. We'd all go up in one line just about. So there was nobody could get through us. Was that, is that an enjoyable form of the game to play? If it's bringing you success, I guess it must be to some extent. Or would you, you know, if you were given a blank sheet of paper in the right conditions, would you rather play the Roy Francis style than the Peter Fox style? The Peter Fox style won more, more trophies than the Roy Francis style won. Because he, he didn't just do it at Odsall, to be fair, and I've mentioned the pitch conditions. He did it at Featherston, Wakefield, Bramley. So the Fox formula worked wherever he was at that time. So I'd have to say, if I wanted to be part of a successful team, I'd want to play for Peter Fox. The problem was with Peter, he didn't always get the ball. He could be, you could be stood around and get maybe two passes in the first half and three in the second, just tackle your backside. And that's what you had to put up with and expect when you were playing in the Peter Fox team. Now, I didn't know Peter, you know, but my time sort of working in the media was after his time as a coach, but I saw the television interviews, that, you know, you knew about the persona and the style. One thing I, and that did come through when you saw him on television as a pundit occasionally or as a commentator was an immense, I mean, immense passion for the game. You know, he, he was almost like, you know, he lived and breathed rugby league and, and just nothing else in his life. Hmm. He did. He was a very clever man as well. He was a mechanical engineer, qualified, apparently a very shrewd golfer. Nobody took him on at golf because he always had the, 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 uh, the mental capacity to think ahead of it. He was a very clever person. I, I could fall out with Peter Fox as much as I could fall out with a wife. That's about three that times was- a day. Only, that's only joking. <laughs> Um, we used to have some battles because I used to t- I, I, I used to take a bit of angling. I've got to admit, I was a person that needed man management, and, and some some of the things he said to, he said to you sometimes he didn't like. But as you get older and you think back, you think, well, yeah, he probably said that for a reason, and it had an outcome. <laughs> um, and he never dropped me. He always picked me. And I'll never forget one thing he said to me. Um, I'd, I'd, I'd been injured. I think I did in my ankle or something. And he said, we met, in his old Featherson speech, we missed thee today. And when a player's been injured, and with so many great players up there, you're worried about getting your, t- your players back. For somebody to say, we missed you today, as a head coach or a manager, that sort of a, lifts you up. Yeah. So he had his ways. Didn't agree with all of them. I didn't agree with how I spoke to certain people, uh, including myself at times. But um, he was successful. He managed people. He did. He did the job for the directors at the club that set him on. So I can't knock him really. These are interesting things, actually. That that when you start to dig deeper beneath, you know, the, the facts and figures on paper of Peter or or whoever's career, the things that we as 
you know, spectators of the sport who've not been in the dressing room and listen to those conversations like to know a bit more of. So tell us, you know, you say you didn't like how he spoke to you or to, to certain people. I mean, would, for example, if he was giving somebody a dressing down, would that be in front of a changing room full of lads and everybody? Would he take him outside? Would he deal with it differently to different people? What was he like in that respect? Unfortunately, sometimes he did it in front of a group. Now, we're all, we've all been guilty of that at times. and It depends on the person you're giving a rollicking to. Some people need the arm around the shoulder. Some people need a quiet chat in the back room. Some people need a bollocking in front of the rest. But Peter always seemed to do it. Um, in front of other people, but he was pre pretty even-handed with that, I thought. He, whoever got a bit of a telling off, he did it in front of the rest. So, you know, you couldn't, you couldn't say, hey, come on, you can say what you want, but don't say in front of others, because he did it generally. And you mentioned that you took a bit of man-managing. Uh, so do you want to elaborate on that? Tell us more about why you were like that and, and what sort of things it took to get the best out of you from those coaches that you played under. Well, I never had a father. Well, I did, but he died when I was really young. And I sort of had um, I mean, I had a stepfather, but we didn't get on. He's dead now, and don't speak ill of the dead. But So um, I always needed a bit of a fatherly figure in my life. I never had one, really. And when some bloke that's not close to you gives you roasting uh, in front of other people, uh, you take it a bit personally. Now, what Roy, Roy Francis was very good at was giving you a roasting without shouting at you in a room where nobody else was. Mm -hmm. Now, that, that is what did it for me. It was um, a bit of managing Peter Rowe was by doing the arm around the shoulder. Right. So if you didn't get that, if, if, if he did have a blast at you in front of your teammates, then what was your reaction to that? Were you a sulker? Did you shout back at him? Did you not talk to him for a couple of days? Did he get angry and play even better on Sunday afternoon? Um, I'd argue back with him and I would play better. <laughs> Again, did, it, did what he said work, play better because of what he said to me. I wouldn't sulk. I've never been a sulker. I've never been a person I don't speak to others. I can fall out with people, Jonathan, and be okay five minutes later. But, and I think I argued back with him more because he did it in front of other people rather than what he said. So, <laughs> it probably, again, it probably got the best out of me. And obviously we're going to fit him onto your coaching career, but it's probably pertinent to ask you at this point, you know, you're talking about two coaches with, you know, you look back through the history of rugby league, two great names there in Roy Francis and Peter Fox, and that's just a, a, one of the clubs that you played at. Um, what did you pick up from them that you then uh, rolled into your own philosophies and the way you dealt with people as a coach yourself? Well, Roy Francis was a magnificent uh, trainer. He, he, he was very good on the fitness front and I picked a lot of things up of, of him from there. He got people fit and a bit old-fashioned, brought people in to do a job for him in terms of how he wanted the game to be played. Um, Peter Fox, I probably learnt more off in terms of tactical. Uh, and a lot of the stuff that he did, I 
um, brought into my early coaching scenario when I started off as a off, uh, off as a kid. Mm-hmm. And all the percentage stuff was spoken about, and uh, wearing the opposition down before you move the ball about. So I, I probably mimicked Peter's coaching methods more than Roy's, really, in terms of tactics. Yeah, well, it served you pretty well when you look at uh, what you won during your coaching career. More on that in just a moment, because before we leave the playing days behind, uh, I don't think we can do that without talking about what happened when you got injured. And we've not really actually said much more. We can come back to that in a sec, because we've not really said too much about those trophies that you were present for. So percentage rugby wins the 79-80 championship under Peter Fox. Just just give us, again, just a few thoughts on on what those memorable moments were and those trophy wins were like. Well, I unfortunately missed, I played in right up to the, up to and including the semis uh, in the John Player Cup final when we beat Witness at Headingley. I played every round. The semi-final was televised against Wakefield. And I read in a paper that, uh, I think it was Ray Fletcher in the Yorkshire Evening Post, said, heavy surface will suit the slower backs of Bradford as opposed to the quicker backs of Wakefield. <laughs> I thought, oh, just, what was this guy talking about? And, and the Wakefield centres, I'm not saying not wrong about it, the Wakefield centres were Jack Marston and St- Steve Diamond, a Welshman. And I played along with, um, I think, Graham Evans, maybe, and myself in the centre for Bradford. And I, I mean, I could run. I could run, Jonathan. <laughs> I have my weaknesses, but I could run. And I read this in the paper and I thought, Steve Diamond, Jack Marston, suit the condition, I'll suit the condition better than them because it's going to be a bit heavy and it'll suit my style. Well, that, that was a motivation in itself. Yeah. And it was a really good game against, uh, against these two blocks. And, um, <laughs> Unfortunately, I um, I dislocated my shoulder. No, sorry, I injured my knee and couldn't play in the final, which when we beat Witness. I got a medal, didn't get paid, so that didn't happen then. <laughs> um, so that was a memorable, memorable win for us, but I didn't play in the final. Again, the Yorkshire Cup went all the way through. Missed the final against York at Headingley. Got a medal. Uh, Premiership final at Swinton. Scored a try, beat Witness. Absolutely fantastic. And in there somewhere, in those late 1970s years, to win, you know, that the league win. We won, we won the league. But yeah. on two occasions. Yeah, so, yeah, fantastic. T- to be at the top of, a, 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 of your tree as a player in... in when I mean top of the tree, I mean playing with a team at the top of the tree with all those stars. They were all modest lads who all get up for work on a Monday morning. Fantastic. Great. So did you play inside inside Dave Barron's? Yes. He it was my Because he scored, I've just got, in fact, I have here, I have here the 1981-82 Rothmans Rugby League yearbook Um for example, and he's still scoring uh, plenty of tries then. 78-79 season, it gives you the list of leading try scorers, and Dave Barons was third with 25 tries. Um, and David Redfern, at, a bit lower down the list with 23. So, um, 
There's a few assists there from a certain P. Rowe. Well, we like to think so. We like to think so. It's a funny thing, you know, I remember, just as, as you've said that, I was working with a bloke one day who was a complete stranger to me, and he said, uh, and I fell for this, unbelievably. He said, uh, you play for Bradford Northern, don't you? He said, yeah. He said, uh, who's your winger? I said, Dave Barron's. He said, he doesn't seem to get a lot of ball, does he? That's <laughs> <laughs> pretty much. <laughs> you've gone through a barren spell I've not scored it for about five matches right. the things happen like the descent of forwards at soccer didn't it yeah and this this fella really wound me up and I've never forgotten it and it was just, it, it, it'd been successful it, it, it pressed the, wrong, the right buttons didn't it you know what I mean but yeah well great Dave Barron yeah he was a, a strong try scoring winger and if Dave had gone on the outside of you it, 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 nine times out of ten he'd scored a try Ah, yeah, great to hear from uh, Peter Rowe and uh, what a cracking story that was and many more to come in the next uh, half hour or so. So please do stick with me for uh, the rest of Sporting Live's episode 14. Just a reminder, though, if you want to keep in touch with what's going on, uh, you don't have to um, listen to and access the podcast as audio only as you are doing at this moment in time. They are also available in video form and they are on YouTube on the channel Sporting Lives with Jonathan Doidge. You can also follow me on LinkedIn where there are updates again on the page Sporting Lives with Jonathan Doidge. And similarly, you can follow me on both Twitter and Facebook. And again, it's Sporting Lives with Jonathan Doidge, the page on Facebook, or at Sporting Lives One, and also at Sporting Lives One on Twitter. So please do um, jump on the bandwagon, and obviously, you will get um, the nod on when any future episodes go up. And I can tell you that it is my intention to get Richie Mathers on um, in the very near future to talk about his glittering career in Rugby League. Let's jump back in now with Peter Rowe. And uh, first of all, um, let's move on to that uh, terrible knee injury that he suffered, um, which uh, brought things to an end for him at Bradford Norton. Talk, talk us through that, uh, that knee situation. And you get the knee injury, and as far as I can make out, um, you, you think you've got to call time on your career and there's some insurance payout that, that Bradford Northern accept um, oh. as your career ends. But then you do manage to get yourself fit. I'm not sure how long that took, but you weren't allowed to play for the club again. That must have been, that must have been a real gut-wrencher. Well, it, legally it was wrong, as I found out years later, but I was a um, a young man with a... A young, sorry, a, 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 you know, newly married with and a family, and um, it was all very traumatic. But top and bottom was, I did my cruciate ligament real bad. The specialist said, in his opinion, he didn't think I'd play again. The club had a number of their players insured in case this happened, and they chose to go down the route of claiming the money rather than giving me the chance to play again. Um, the 30 grand they cashed in and gave me two grand and said see you later sorry about this but uh, you're not going to play again so we're cashing the money in and I, I, I came over two grand and that was it finished end of story and you weren't did you have any comeback on that did you take any legal action for example if you didn't agree with it went to the rugby league 
they didn't really want to know. Um, so it was a case of I started to think myself that, that probably my knee never would be right because I lost confidence in everything really. Um, a players' union started at that particular time, and I went to see this bloke who was a real Arthur Scargill type. And he said, I'll get this sorted out for you. But it might be that you never have to play for Bradford again. Apparently, if I played for Bradford again, they'd have to pay the money back. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was like a motor car without an MOT, really. Um, so, so, go on. Because Bradford, well, I don't, I don't know. Were Bradford not prepared to pay that money back because it had already been spent type of thing? Um, yeah. Did, did you feel yeah, let definitely. down in that respect then that they weren't prepared to put themselves out to get you back on their playing roster? Is that what you sort of the feelings were? Major devastation felt betrayed, to be honest. Because you know, I'm, I'm not being funny. I wasn't just an ordinary player. I, you know, I was a decent player, and it was my life and um, just all the emotional rollercoaster that went through my head. I just felt betrayed. So, yeah, and. Um, so this guy got me playing again through some uh, system where I had to play for whoever signed me for a few months. Um, if my knee went again, I personally couldn't claim any money, but I never there wasn't a, an avenue for me to claim any money from anywhere. But to play as an amateur for a few months, and I think it was Christmas, and then if everything's fine, you can sign on as a pro again. And that's what I did for York for a season. Yeah. And then uh, that was first division at the time, was it? Yeah. Yeah. Played on the top side, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And then uh, was it Graham Steadman around by then? Graham was just coming. Yeah, he was just coming into the team. Yeah. Just signed him. Yeah. Good player. Um, and obviously Hunslet. Then I think to, to finish things off. Yeah, well, travelling got a bit too much for me, and I had a job where I was rushing around and driving like an idiot to get to places, I thought, well, this is going to end up in a disaster zone. So I signed Hunslet a little bit closer to home and had three really fantastic seasons there under another really good coach, Paul Daly, who was a master of managing players. Uh, Super lad, very underrated coach, very well connected in the Castleford area for getting juniors and stuff, knew everybody. And he, he loved Unslet. He absolutely, absolutely loved the club. And um, yeah, I played for them for three years and got to through the third round of the League Cup against Cass and we had a good, with a good spell there, yeah. So you hung your boots up after all that. In what year was that? Well, I, had, I, I went to Keith late for one year. Sadly, the coach had, a, had died with cancer halfway through the season. So I guess who they asked to do the coaching for him? Me. So I <laughs> I sort of uh, went into it basically as a novice, uh, but was given the opportunity to try a few things. And um, then at the end of that season, I retired. I went to so play that, amateur. Uh, yeah. Right, that was sort of mid-80s. And then, then you started to get some... Uh, more serious bites at, at coaching jobs. Um, I'm trying to think yeah. where where did you get your first real opportunity? Was it was it Halifax? Yeah, I'd been at Dudley all the year before. We'd won the National Conference League. Yeah, 
who were standing with some great lads, trained them to death and played all sorts of fantastic rugby on a really flat, dry, open pitch at Dudley Hill. Um, and then Halifax were looking for a coach. They'd sort of gone out of business and bankrupt after the Chris Anderson era. And we started with nothing. Uh, we got promoted as second in the league. We played the Australian Tourists midweek, which was a fantastic occasion. We got promoted as second. We got, got through to the Premiership final. Lost to, Cass, uh, to Salford sorry, in the final. And then they said to me, at your age, we don't think you've got the necessary experience of coaches in. It wasn't Super League then. It was, yeah. it was Division 1, but it was Super League, really. Um, so I said, fine, OK. That's what you want. Uh, they brought Mal Re- they brought Roger Millward in, spent a fortune, and they brought Mal Reilly in. Um, so they brought in two really top line coaches after me, which they said they wanted. So I uh, I went to Keithley and coached them for two and a half years, three that years. I think been, that would have been going back to the start of the Cougars era, would it? Cougar yeah. mania, yes, it was Cougar mania. We we the yeah. man induced all that. No, <laughs> no, that was down to the two mix, Mick O'Neill and Mick Smith, Mike Smith. Oh yeah, yeah, just uh, just pulling your leg. Yeah, yeah, the two mix. Yes, I know that. <laughs> but to be fair, I mean, we you know we credit in Bradford Bulls with what they did at the start of the Super League era, and you know what they did there in that that first few years of Cougar Mania must have been fantastically exciting times for the locals down there. Oh, it was unprecedented. We'd never, they'd never seen anything like it. I think Keith had the one or two really good spells in the, the, the late thirties and the mid fifties, but after that, it, 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 Keith had never done much really. And I, I signed a lot of lads that had played for me at Halifax that Halifax didn't think they were good enough to play in their at their level. And Martin Wood and Jason Ramshaw, people like that. Mm. We signed all this players from all over. And um, we, we just turned it round overnight and the crowd started to sort of build and the noise started to get louder. It was a phenomenal um, change to what had happened in previous years. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. It was, um, I mean, I do, uh, you know, I did have first-hand experience of it down there because my first ever BBC broadcast, would you believe, was Keithley versus Featherstone Rovers one Friday night. Yeah. On a telephone, plugged into the, uh, the usual socket there in the main stand at, uh, at Keithley. That was uh, a little bit later, late 90s, after that initial uh, thrust of Cougar Mania. But I do remember the, the speakers blaring out and Mike on the pitch and all sorts of stuff going on. Uh, yeah. Before that, you'd won that, the Division Three, as it was when, when that came in. You'd won the title with them, hadn't you? That was your first trophy as a, yeah. as a professional coach. Yes, it, it was, yeah. Um, First trophy, uh, the club had won for 90 years, I believe. Um, especially how, occasion, proud, how proud of you to do that, your hometown club, you know, to, to bring them some success? Really proud, fantastically proud, yeah. It was, um, I'd watched them as a kid and, like I said earlier, and played for them and come back and played and then coached. So I'd, I'd been through the mill in terms of in, in the things I'd done. I'd mopped the, the dressing room floors when the uh, kit men went on strike. True story. Um, this was that same season we're talking about when we won the league. Me and my assistant Ian Ferris, we 
we packed the kit up one day because they refused to come back off strike, did the kit men, done everything, even run the baths for the lads. Mm-hmm. Before before baths were banned. <laughs> Brilliant. Um, and obviously you've had spells at the likes of Barrow uh, and Swinton and, and Featherstone, but I'm mean, thinking... Um, in your time in one of your spells at Barrow because you've, you've, you've hopped around the two or three clubs on two or three occasions haven't you one of your spells at Barrow again a proud moment for you 1994 League 2 Division 2 champions I should say um, coach of the year two, uh, 2004 sorry 2004 my apologies no sorry right. yeah. yeah well we had a we had a, a really good side um at Barrow that year, the, the, the thing about if you want to be successful in, in Cumbria, you've got to realise that there are only a certain amount of players that live in those areas that are capable of winning trophies at that level. If you want to go any higher, you've got to bring people in. The beauty was when we were in Division 2 that the players that were living in the area were good enough to win us a trophy. So there weren't travelling miles to come to training and travelling miles to go home because Barrow is out on a limb. They're all local lads. And I, I used to say to these lads, right, not gonna do, we're not going to do any video stuff. If you, wanna, if you want to, me to help you improve you as a player, come in and see me in the Barrow shop, because I was full-time at lunchtime, and I'll edit tapes, and we'll talk about stuff, and we'll talk about how well you've played or what you need to do to improve. All we do at training, no meetings, nothing, we'll just do the training. I said, that won't last more than an hour and a quarter. And if we've had a bad session or a good session, you're on your way home to see wives and kids or whoever. I said, but if you want me to improve as a player, come down in your lunch break or whenever you can during the day and we'll look at a video or a DVD as they are. And it it worked absolutely brilliantly, that system. And the lads loved it. And we won the, the division outstandingly. The problem was the year after, 2005, we had a better team the year before and a lot of the players didn't fancy it. One or two, with a couple of us who lived in the town, moved to Lee to play for Lee. So we had a very poor team the year after and we couldn't get nobody to come up to play for us. Because nobody wants to travel to Barrow to train. Yeah, (laughs) difficult, difficult area. I mean, one of the great, great uh, traditional areas for playing the game, but um, yeah. you know, unfortunately, yeah. it is those three clubs up there are so far out of the way from the rest of the sport, uh, professional sport at least, that um, it must be difficult for anybody. So, you clearly did a very fine job with that. Um, prior to that, of course, we've jumped right past your spell as a Super League coach with, with Wakefield. Is that, I mean, that, that lasts for less than a year, I think, doesn't it? And is that mm. one of those things where you look back and think, you know, I just needed, uh, like most coaches, a bit more time? Or, or were there other reasons for it being so short? No, no I didn't need any more time. It was a nightmare. Um, Peter Fox had transformed from a coach to a uh, football manager and he wanted to interfere too much. And it... That in itself wasn't too bad a thing because he still had some great ideas, but it did rankle well with the players. Because in a situation where you're coaching players on a full-time basis as opposed to 
part-time basis, as I've previously, previously described, the players need to know who's the boss. And it used to come down to the ground, changing the team, shouting, bowling about who would picked. The players heard him. You can't pick him. You can't do that. And it was a, from the first month I'd been there, I knew I'd made a massive mistake. I wasn't in charge. There was a chairman, um, a CEO, chief executive officer, a rugby manager or whatever Peter, football manager, director, what Peter was. And then there was the head coach, me. And it eroded my confidence. I was getting brought into board meetings. Why aren't you picking him? We don't agree with what you're doing. Um, a spectator complained about you on Sunday because you came out of your, of your position at the top of the stand and, and uh, you bumped his arm into his shoulder on the way past. And all these little nitpicking things were just a nightmare. And I thought, I don't need this. Yeah. And I, I went into the board and I said to him, listen, it's not really working out this. We're halfway through the season. We're fourth from bottom. We'd actually not played badly. Um, what, what are your thoughts for next season? Because obviously I need to get back into normal stream of working. Um, I was still in my 40s then. Um, <clears throat> late 40s. And they had a meeting said, we won't be renewing your contract next year. I said, fine. I was absolutely delighted. Mm -hmm. I might sound weird. But the pressure of the job, because of what was happening, was too much. Mm. So we agreed a settlement, and away I went, and I didn't regret one minute the ending of it all. That's an interesting, uh, interesting take, because when you look down the CV, and naturally, I would guess, because as a player, you wanted to be the best player you could be. You know, they had the, the agony of missing out on a possible Great Britain tour, let's face it, um, as, yeah. as a player. So as a coach, I'm sure you want to be winning as many pots as you can, but doing it at the highest level with the best players. And that was your one sort of Super League opportunity, really, wasn't it? It was. Um, and, um, and um, yeah, you, you and might I'm aware. Looking from, looking in from the outside that you might regret that another one didn't come along, but you don't sound like you're that bothered, really. No, I, I think I'd been through the ringer. I'd been through throw the ring with all these clubs and let me trade. And my idea of of coaching at Super League, my vision was a completely different vision to the reality. And it wasn't good. So that relationship with Peter Fox that you had as player and coach, now as coach and director of rugby, was, was it the bad stuff of the player-coach relationship that was sort of resurfacing rather than the good stuff when you were at Wakefield with him? No, I felt let down by him um, because he got me there under false pretenses. He really wanted to be the coach. I wanted to coach through me. And the way I went about it wasn't good. So we felt, you know, disappointed. And we never, we never spoke. Sadly, he's died, Peter. Nothing against him. But we never, we never spoke after that. Very sad, really. It is. It's a, that's a, a sad to hear. Um, of such a, a well-respected coach, well-respected guy. Um, yeah, and may, I say because... before, may I say, Jonathan, may I, sorry, may I say that respect I have for him is still there, despite what happened at Wakefield. That's good to hear. I say that on, on record. <laughs> good to hear. Um, you, you did mention that you, you know, you've 
argued with people and these things are usually cleared up within five minutes. I picked up on an article going back from about a decade or so ago when you were coaching at Barrow and um, Dave Woods was in charge at Castleford. And Dave Hadfield, mm-hmm. the godfather of rugby league writers, wrote an article in The Independent suggesting that you were both going to be or possibly up on a disciplinary charge with the RFL for a bit of a spat. Um, I don't know whether you want to unearth the, the past again or not, but uh, I thought this is interesting. Yeah, no I didn't problem. ask you about this. <laughs> no problem. It, it was the most weird build-up to anything I've ever known, really. Um, we, were, we were struggling. It was a year after the promotion, we were struggling. Uh, and Cass were in the same division and were top, beating everybody. And I got a phone call from Dave Woods. Uh, oh, I never, never knew him really. I knew who he was, but I didn't know him personally. I said, uh, well, I won't do the Aussie accent. He said, we're coming up here in a couple of weeks' time, Peter. He said, can you recommend a hotel, comfortable hotel where the lads can relax? And I'd also like to send a representative of mine up, maybe this week, to have a look at your pitch, to have a look at your dressing rooms, and at the same time measure your pitch, because I believe it's a wide pitch. He obviously fancied it because he likes to throw the ball about with it. And I th- thought this was rather a bizarre blooming phone call. But I didn't have an argument with him. I said, yeah, come up. I said, I can recommend so-and-so hotel. And if you want to send somebody up to look at the ground, no problem. Because if I'd have said, no, don't come and look at the ground, he'd probably have sent somebody up anyway. Um, so I thought, well, no problem. So I said, yes, Dave, absolutely no problem. And this is the hotel I recommend. But before you go, before you put the phone down, I want you to do me a favour. And he said, yeah, what's that? I said, send me a video of your last game against Rochdale Hornets because we were playing Rochdale in between them, between the Rochdale game and the Cass game. And to, 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 the, to people that don't know what we do as coaches, we, we, we study the opposition and we do it by bringing the coach up and, and getting swapping videos and swapping DVDs. That's a, a dumb thing in rugby league. Always do your homework on the opposition. Videotape never, or video, or whatever it was, DVD never arrived. So I'd, I'd put myself out. I'd help this guy out. I recommended a hotel for him. All I wanted was him to post me a DVD or a, a video of Rochdale Hornets. No problem. I'm still waiting. I'm still waiting for the DVD stroke video to arrive. <laughs> so I thought, right, monkey, I'll show you. So those dressing rooms that he'd sent somebody up to look at, and I, and I still don't know if anybody came or not, because I, I weren't always at the club during the day. Um, I got a couple of the full-time Aussie lads to paint the dressing rooms black. Their dressing room black. But not only paint it black, but paint it on the Friday before they came on a Sunday, so the fumes would still be fairly rampant. That's what we did. That started it all off. You naughty boy. So, you naughty boy. Well, yep. According, according to, to Dave's article, and uh, just bear with me for a moment because I better make sure that we, we mention this with uh, factual accuracy. It's from Thursday the 6th of October 2011. 
saying that two coaches face a rugby league investigation over allegations that they were involved in an angry clash with each other after a National League One match. Um, the league has called for reports before deciding whether to proceed with charges against Peter Rowe of Barrow and Castleford's Dave Woods. At the time, you were reported as saying, my conscience is clear, though you admitted that there had been tensions before the game. Um, and you said Mr Woods had complained that we'd painted the away dressing room and claimed that his players had been affected by the fumes. They beat you anyway by 36 points to 22. But then it was reported here that as you approached Dave Woods to shake hands and congratulate him, um, uh, you held out your hand and said that it was the fact uh, that they were full-time that had made the difference between the two sides. Uh, yeah. You said that he swore at you and pushed you on the chest and sent you backwards and you had scores of witnesses um, that saw that. Um, and he, in response, claimed that you had challenged him to a fight behind the stand, something mm -hmm. that you denied. So, come on, what happened? Right. Game up, we, we played really well. And, and as usual, um, for the last 10 minutes, they scored two tries, which made the, the, the score look more convincing than it was. I was really proud of the lads that day because they really got stuck into Cass. So end of the game, we are both outside, obviously our respective dugouts. He's at the castle the dugout and I'm at the Barrow Barrow one. I walked up to him, held my hand out, he said, and I said, the difference today has been the fact that you're full-time, nearly Super League, and we're part-time. He says, F off, you're an effing crap coach, and you're coaching you coach an effing crap team, and you're left him well get relegated at the end of the season. Well, he got one of them right, because we did get relegated. <laughs> um, and I said to him, there's no need to be like that, and tapped him on the shoulder. He says I pinged his ear with my fingers. Lie. Didn't. As I tapped him on the shoulder, he, I mean, he's a big man, is Mr Woods. He pushed me backwards towards the advertising audience. And I said to him, if you want to continue this conversation, let's do it round the back, away from Joe Public. Now, if he thought that meant let's get it on behind the stand, well, that's, that's his interpretation. I can't do anything about that. But no way did I want to have a fight with him round the back of the stand. And that is what happened. Okay. Well, so we've got your version of events, and obviously he's reported, or his, his version was reported in the newspaper at yeah. the time, did we manage to eventually shake hands? What happened in terms of the disciplinary side of things with the Rugby Football League? Right, well, this guy, that an ex-CID man that the Rugby League used to um, employ to investigate disciplinaries came to my house. And I told him exactly what I told you. Um, and I said to him, I don't care what he said, I said, I'm telling you what happened. And if you want to go interview... Loads of people in Barrow, go and speak to them. Uh, I said, you'll probably get six people that saw what happened from, as Barrow fans and six cast fans and they'll, they'll probably, they might tell the or some might, I don't know. Anyway, I said, and I will, I'll attend any disciplinary and I will repeat what I've said to you. And as I said to you just now, Jonathan, that's what happened. Anyway, um, nothing happened. No case to answer was the outcome. But I saw him 
a year later when I was I'd gone back to Keithley as director of, of football to a disciplinary at Red Hall with a player and he was sat there with a player and I walked up to him and I said listen mate let's just you know put things to the past help me hand out <laughs> uh, and he just said no you're alright and that was it so I thought, that's up to you that's how you want to be okay so um, that's behind us we move on and mm-hmm. I just wanted to really because we're getting towards um, closing time on this particular episode Peter it's been fascinating talking to you I, want to, I just want you to tell me both as a player and as a coach what you think your strengths and weaknesses were and why question strengths and weaknesses strengths I think motivation um, being able to um, amplify my philosophy on the game as a winner and as as a coach and one key element that Maurice Bamford once told me always choose your assistant coaches properly don't inherit, don't don't inherit anybody, and make sure that your assistant coach doesn't want your job. So he said, oh, last thing he said to me about that: always get an assistant coach that you can trust as much as you can trust your mother. Your mother. So that's another strength that you've got to have, and I and I think on occasions that's something that I've not done. I'm not going to mention any names or anything. Oh, come uh, on. <laughs> I can mention some really good lads I've had with me, like Ian Ferris at Keithley and Dean Marwood at Barrow. But I was let down by a guy that, that helped me out at Wakefield. Um, and I was let down once by a guy that helped me up in uh, up in uh, Swinton. No names, no back drill. Weaknesses. Um, difficult to... To admit to weaknesses, isn't it? But we all have them. That's why I um, wanted to ask you it, yeah. Because you don't tend to shirk anything that I ever ask you, so I thought I'd ask you this. Weaknesses are, I think, struggling to cope with defeat, not able to get over defeat as quickly as I should do, to be able to prepare for the week after. And sometimes, especially early on in my coaching career, probably carried it on too much into the week and it's like your players obviously want to forget about it and get over it so why aren't you getting over it coach and also I think the the worst thing about being a coach is dropping somebody it's terrible when you have to leave somebody out uh, especially if it's a situation where the guy you're picking in front of him isn't much better and you don't know which one to pick. So explaining to the one that you've left out why you've done it. And my assistant coach here always said to me, you spend too much time um, nearly apologising to a player for leaving him out when he should make it basically A, B, C, do it. So that's probably um, a weakness that I had. And I think the third weakness is um, when, you've, when you've had a string of defeats, You've not got to think that you're going to get sacked. And I, and despite what 
any football manager or rugby coach says, we all think we're going to get sacked when we've lost two matches, but you've not got to carry that into the training sessions with you. Does that mean, so is that a case of you therefore saying you need to just believe in you know, your philosophy and it will pull through? Yes. Yeah. You do. And, and you, you, you have self-doubt because you think the players have, are losing confidence in what you're doing. And that's what they call losing the dressing room. And we've all lost dressing rooms, everybody. Yeah. At times. It happens. It's life. Yeah. Um, people watching who remember you, uh, who know you possibly, but who remember you as a, as a player and a coach, will probably answer, have a couple more questions that they'd like asking, such as, what's Peter Rowe doing now, apart from being a dodgy Ed Ellen Wolfdale cricket league umpire, he said, smiling. Yeah. Very dodgy. <laughs> <laughs> Ear, earrings going, eyes, eyes are going, yeah. Um, what am I doing now? I work for the probation service. Okay. I've been working for the probation for about 14, 15 years now, supervising offenders and allocating offenders and looking after them, if that's the right word, and making sure they're behaving themselves, all that stuff. Do you have, I mean, you said you don't talk about rugby league much. Do you have any involvement whatsoever in the game? Do you go watch matches anymore? No. Not been for years, sadly. I watch it on TV. I still love the game and I still stick up for it. I have f- fights on Facebook with rugby union fraternity about stuff. and I stick up for the game like it's, uh, like it's my, my own children. And Yeah, I'm, I'm still a big blame because it's been good to me. It's been bad for me and good for me. That's ups and downs, but I appreciate it. You know, it's earned me a bob or two over the years and I've enjoyed it. I met some great people and so I love the game still. And finally, I guess, you know, from the cricket fans watching, when are you actually going to improve the umpire? I think I've got past improvement, really. <laughs> I have, I have big, one big worry is this year because of the COVID, you can't get into doctors. And I always have my ears fringed <laughs> about two weeks before. True story. Always have my ears changed about two two weeks before the season starts. So I might be absolutely hopeless this year. <laughs> More hopeless than I am normally. <laughs> well, I just I just hope it doesn't happen to be on an occasional free weekend that I get during the season where I might strap some pads on because if I walk out and you're standing at the other end, I know I'm stone dead wherever that ball is. <laughs> yeah, you just might as well not bother. Bat number eleven. <laughs> You've been a great guest. Um, it's been a pleasure to have you on Sporting Lives. Thanks for being so candid. Um, and uh, we wish you all the best for the future. Thanks once again. Jonathan, thank you very much indeed. My pleasure. Yeah, great to hear from Peter Rowe on Sporting Lives. Now, thanks to you for your company. Don't forget, email me with suggestions for future guests, jonathandoidge.hotmail.com. Follow me on Twitter or on Facebook or on LinkedIn at Sporting Lives 1 and Sporting Lives with Jonathan Doidge. And you can access the videos of these podcasts if you prefer to watch rather than just listen. They're on the YouTube channel, Sporting Lives with Jonathan Deutsch. Thank you for your support. We'll be back soon with episode 15.